This past Thanksgiving, we were at my uh, parents' house, and one night, my dad and I were watching a, a show that comes on the NFL Network called A Football Life. Any of y'all ever watch that show? It's a great, great show, very well done, and uh, we watched through a few episodes of that, and one of my favorites was the one they did on Barry Sanders. Though I grew up watching Barry on TV, I didn't know a lot about him off the field. And one thing that, that struck me that I didn't know about him was how humble of a guy he was. Though he was considered by many to be, you know, one of the top five, maybe even top three running backs of all time, he was extremely humble. And this is the way he was early in life. In his first few years of high school, his coach felt as if Sanders was not going to cut it as a running back. Can you imagine that? Colossal mistake. And he moves him to defense. Well, Barry could have started a big stink about that, right? But he didn't. Instead, he just wanted to be in a position to help his team succeed. Well, thankfully, a coaching change took place before Sanders' senior year and the new coach put him where he belonged in the backfield. And Sanders had an incredible year, even though he didn't start right away. In fact, he missed the first four games of the season. He put up incredible numbers for the rest of the year. And he would have won the City League rushing title in Wichita, Kansas that year. But Barry told his high school coach, toward the end of the last game of the season, instead of him going on to get the yards he needed to win, he told his coach to let the younger guys play. So he forfeited an opportunity of winning the rushing title that year for his team. And that's just the kind of guy he was. He didn't put his personal accomplishments before the team. He wasn't all that concerned with personal stats and rushing records. He had a wonderful team mentality. And this continued on into his college years when Sanders signed with the Oklahoma State University Cowboys. Sanders, even though he didn't start right away, he had an incredible college career as well. He won the Heisman his junior year over other future NFL greats, Troy Aikman, y'all know that name? Deion Sanders and Derek Thomas. I mean, look at him. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. They were all in the running that year. But you know what? His dad said, Barry's dad said later, that Barry didn't feel as if he deserved the award over other, the other great collegiate athletes. And he wasn't all that concerned with the award. He wasn't even at the ceremony, if you can believe that. Sanders, in fact, he left his trophy at his parents' house to collect dust on their mantle. After college, Sanders was selected number three in the 1989 NFL draft. Played for the Detroit Lions, and he never went anywhere else. He was a Detroit Lion his entire career, and he, year after year, continued to put up monster numbers. And he retired in the prime of his career after only playing 10 seasons in the NFL. And many were shocked by Sanders' early retirement because he had a lot left in the tank. And because he was within striking distance 
of the NFL rushing record held by Walter Payton. But again, that was of little to no interest for Sanders, who decided to retire. And when asked why he retired from football, Sanders said he had lost his competitive spirit because in their final year, they had only gone 5-11. and 11. He was tired of playing for the average and many times below average Detroit Lions. And even though he rushed for close to 1,500 yards, he retired because he had lost his competitive spirit. And Emmett Smith, one of his close friends, who was also asked about Sanders' early exit from football, said this, Barry's a competitor. He said, when you're doing all you can to help your team win, and you put up incredible numbers week in and week out, and your team continues to lose, it takes a lot out of you. It kills your competitive spirit. And that's what happened to Barry Sanders. You see, personal accomplishments were of little to no concern for him. What he wanted more than anything was for his team to succeed. Here's my point. The one thing that pressed me the most about Barry Sanders was his selflessness on the field. Now, I know he had some personal problems later on in life off the field, but on the field... Barry was not all about Barry. In an organization where most are looking out for number one, their own interest, and they're going to teams where they can make the most money and are concerned with padding their stats and remaining a top commodity rather than winning football games, Sanders was the exact opposite. He was not concerned with rushing yards week in and week out how many times he got in the end zone or winning rushing titles or even being considered the best to ever play the game. Barry was all about using his skills to put his team in a position to win. He was not about himself, but about the team. And I tell you all of that to ask you this one question. Is that true of you spiritually? Is that true of you spiritually? When you think about your spiritual life, are you all that comes to your mind? Think many of us, if we were honest, we would have to answer yes to that question. Many of us, when thinking about our spiritual life, we view it like many professional athletes view their careers. We view it with ourselves at the center. When we think about Christianity, we think it's all about me. It's all about my personal walk with Christ. It's all about my growth in godliness. It's all about me and my Lord. It's all about God's will for my life. It's all about me. Many, when they view the church, they view the church in the same way, with themselves at the center. When they think about the church, they believe that the church exists and only exists to serve them. When they visit churches, they visit with this mentality, what can you do for me? What can you do for my kids? How can you benefit me and my family? How can you make my life better? How can you make my kids' lives better? And if they're not satisfied with the answers and with the programs the churches have in place, they go elsewhere or they go at their spiritual life on their own. This is the mentality of many in our world today when it comes to their spiritual life and when it comes to the church. 
And though I agree, there is an individual aspect to Christianity. And though it's essential, and though we as a church should serve to grow people and their families in godliness, which if you read our mission statement, it's all about that. Listen, Scripture is also clear that there is a group aspect, a corporate part of the Christian faith, and that we're to have a team mentality, and that we're to see ourselves as simply one among many members of that team who need one another. And though we're blessed by being a part of that team, we should also contribute and be a blessing to others. Scripture is also clear, folks, that we will never get to where we need to be spiritually if we don't view our Christian life in this way. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Ephesians this morning. Today we're just going to be discussing two verses. Plowing through it, right? Two verses. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. And as I've said already in this series, this book, the book of Ephesians, it divides nicely into two halves. In the first half of the book, you have Paul telling us of all the wonderful things that God has done for us and who we are in Christ. And then in the second half of the book, he teaches us how to live in light of those truths. So in the first half of the book, Paul's focus is upon doctrine. And in the second half of the book, his focus is upon Practice, And the reason why is because he knows if we're going to be faithful in practice, we must first be sound in doctrine. Right thinking leads to right living. If you don't think rightly, you won't live rightly. And Paul understood that, which is why he structures this book in this way. In our passage for today and next week, Paul is going to discuss the importance of us seeing ourselves as a part of the bigger team and the importance of us walking worthy Together, And I want you to notice something in this passage, very important. Notice how Paul begins here. He does not focus on what we are to do as a church. He'll make that a focus later on. Instead, he starts by focusing on us knowing who we are collectively in Christ. And again, the reason he does, he does this here is because Paul knows before we can live with this team mentality that we are one among many equal members of God's family and before we can walk worthy together as a family and as a church, Paul knows first and foremost, before that can happen, we must understand who we have become individually and corporately in Christ and how we've been made new and how We've been brought together as a family and as a church. Think about this for a minute. If Paul just began by addressing behavior before explaining to the believers of his day what was now true of them in Christ, that would not have gone over very well. Really wouldn't have. If he just jumped right into addressing behaviors because the church in that day, like it is today, had become extremely diverse. And there are a lot of barriers to overcome. Sound familiar? Yeah. It's a messy business, bringing people from different walks of life together. And that's the way it was in Paul's day. 
Paul's day, you had people in, in the churches in those days who had been brought together from all different walks of life, all different cultures, different nations. And though most of them spoke Greek, many of them spoke different languages as well. They had different personalities. They had different giftings, and they also had different hang-ups and different prejudices. The churches Paul was writing to in this book had some major differences, and the two major groups that Paul addresses, the two major groups that Paul mentions here in Ephesians 2 were the Jews and the Gentiles, and these two groups were as different as they come. They had a rocky past. The wall that divided the Jews and the Gentiles was high, wide, and seemingly impenetrable. In that day, Jews did not care for the Gentiles much at all. I read recently where there were some Jews who believed that God had created the Gentiles for fuel to use in hell. Can you imagine saying that about somebody? Or even thinking that? Wow. Paul had a Paul had a lot on his plate, didn't he? The Jews believed that they were the ones who were loved and favored by God. And all other nations were hated. Now, though God had set them apart, he had chosen them for a purpose, right? And his purpose in doing so was that they would be a channel through which the blessings would flow to the rest of the nations. Is that not what God promised Abraham? He said, through you. All nations will be blessed. But the Jews had lost sight of this. They had missed this. Instead of viewing themselves as a channel through which blessings flowed to the rest of the nations, the Jews viewed themselves more like a bucket. They thought God had just dumped out all of his blessings and favor on them and no one else. I read where one one commentator said this of the Jews. He said, The special privilege God meant as a tool for witness for the Jews became an excuse for carnal, selfish, self-glorification and pride. They had missed it. And as a result, by the first century, the Jews wanted nothing to do with non-Jewish and even many half Jewish people. The Gentiles didn't care for the Jews much either. We know that to be true, both biblically and historically, am I right? In the Old Testament, there were many attempts to take the Jews out. Remember Haman in the book of Esther? He tried to put an end to the Jewish race. We also learn that in the Old Testament, the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians and the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And in the first century, things did not change much. At this time, the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans. We learn there are many other non-Jewish groups who didn't like them as well. I read where uh, there were many Gentiles at this time who referred to the Jews as enemies of the human race. Now, that's a little bit more tame than the the thought of the Jews toward the Gentiles, right? But still, it's bad. And that continued on to the 20th century. That prejudice did, did it not? And we learn in Scripture that even after coming together and joining the same church, these two groups still had issues. On the one hand, you had the Jews telling the Gentiles that they need to become more Jewish to be Christian, and you had those on the other side who were ministering to the Gentiles and non-Jewish Christians saying you needed to become less Jewish to be Christian. 
So there was a lot of confusion in the early church and hard feelings on both sides due to personal prejudices and cultural differences. And the church, it struggled to be unified. And so here in Ephesians 2, instead of beginning by telling this diverse group of Christians, here's how you live, here's how you treat one another, Paul simply explains to them what is true of them in Christ. How they've been made one in him. Paul begins by focusing on who they are in Christ because he knows that before they can walk worthy together, they need to understand how Christ has transformed them and how he's made them a new people and and how he has brought them all together through the work he accomplished at Calvary. This morning, we're just going to focus on two verses, the first two here in this passage, and the first point from this passage. And I, I want you to notice that Paul's main focus in this passage, especially the one we're going to look at this morning, is on the Gentile audience. In fact, he mentions it by name. We know Paul ministered primarily to the Gentiles, and he speaks primarily to them here in this passage, which is good for us because that's what most of us are, right? So it's good. This is for us, non-Jewish Christians. And the message for today and the one for next week you're going to find is extremely applicable for us today. It really is. Because there are many in our churches today who have issues with others in the church for a variety of reasons. Because of race, or gender, or age or background, or socioeconomic status, and these personal prejudices, these cultural differences, they can rip us apart. They can keep us from walking worthy together. They can cripple us as a church. You see why this passage is important? They can hinder us, folks, from being strong witnesses for Christ and making an impact in his world for him. So, folks, Paul's message here, it's for us. And in these 12 verses we're going to look at over the next two weeks, Paul is going to explain to us who we now are in Christ and how we've been brought together as his people. And he's going to explain to us what our identity is as the people of God so that we're able to overlook our differences and overcome these barriers that divide us so that we can walk worthy together. Notice first, Paul says, in order for us to walk worthy together, we must first remember who we were before Christ. Remember who you were before Christ, Paul says. Have you ever heard the saying, to get to where you're going, you have to know where you've been? Y'all heard that? So true. Paul knows that to be true here, which is why he says what he does in verses 11 and 12. He knew that before the church could be who God had called her to be, he knew that before the believers of his day could be stand united and walk worthy together, they had to be reminded of where they have come from, where they had been. And Paul tells them that, his Gentile audience here in this passage. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, 
Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So it's clear here, Paul's talking to the Gentiles, am I right? He he calls them by name. He says, I want you Gentiles to remember something. I want you to remember who you were before God called you and before Christ changed you. He says, I want you to remember the state of things with you before you were saved and brought into the family of God. He says, previously, you were cut off from God, from his people, and from his promises. There was this great divide between you and him and you and them. You were alienated in every way from God, from his people, and from his promises. Notice he says, first, you were separate physically. He says you were physically different. Look at the first part of verse 11 again. He says at one time, that's before salvation... He's referring back to before they were saved. He says, you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, let me explain what Paul's saying here. Some of you are like, huh? What? Let me explain what Paul's saying. Paul's saying here, at one time, you Gentiles were called the uncircumcision, which in that day, that was a derogatory term made in those days by the Jews toward non-Jewish people. You see, circumcision in the Old Testament up until the time of Christ was an outward sign that set God's people apart from the surrounding nations. And it was meant to symbolize being cleansed from sin. The reason that was the symbol was because, get this, in the, in the procreative act, the sin nature is passed from generation to generation. So circumcision symbolized being cleansed of that sin. But it was simply meant to be an outward picture of what was to be an inward reality. Now, sadly, in Paul's day, the Jews thought of it, that act in general, to be a, a way to salvation. They thought the act of circumcision, along with a few other things, is what saved them. And the practice had lost its spiritual significance. And Paul addresses that here. Notice he says, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, or the group known as the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul makes the point here that the Jews were proud of this title. They referred to themselves as the circumcision. I know that's a strange title to be proud of. But you have to understand what it meant. It meant they had been set apart. They were God's covenant people. And only them. But Paul says here and elsewhere that this was merely a physical act. It had become a physical act with no spiritual significance tied to it. Though they were performing the outward act, there was no inward change of heart, which is what truly matters. Am I right? That's why Paul says here, it was made in the flesh by hands. There's no spiritual significance to what they were doing. But the main point Paul's making here is this. By calling the Gentiles the uncircumcision, he's reminding them, he's reminding the non-Jewish people that at one time, they were physically different 
from God's covenant people. He's also going to say they were uncircumcised in their hearts at one time as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. But right now he's focusing on the fact that they were, they were physically different. They were separate ethnically. Paul makes mention in this passage, they were Gentiles. He says, you were Gentiles. You were not Jews. You were not born children of Abraham. You were not a part of the people of promise. They were also separate covenantally. At one time, there were no binding agreements between God and the non-Jewish people. You ever thought about that? They were out of the loop when it came to God's promises. Now, we know they weren't completely out of the loop, right? Because we know the promise that God made to Abraham, it extended to all nations, right? But many of them didn't know about that promise. Look again at verse 12. Paul says, remember that you at one time were separated from Christ. See, not every Jew trusted in Christ for their salvation, but you know what? At least they grew up hearing about the message of the coming of the Messiah. Many of the Gentiles didn't even have that. Many of them had no concept of a Messiah that was coming to, uh, coming to save at one time. Therefore, they didn't know Christ. They were pagans, completely lost with no deliverer, no Messiah, no king, no savior. They were Christless. Let's keep reading. Paul says this. You are alienated from the commonwealth or the nation of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles did not have the scriptures. They were ignorant when it came to the promises God made to his people. They didn't know about the promise that God had made to Adam and Eve. Remember way back, Genesis 3.15, where God promises through the seed of the woman is going to come one who's going to crush the serpent's head? They didn't know about that. They didn't know about the promises God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 about how through him all nations would be blessed. They were ignorant of the promises made to David about a forever king coming to sit on his throne. They were complete strangers to these promises. And he goes on to say, not only were you separate physically and ethnically and covenantally, but you were also separate spiritually. That's a big one. Paul says, you were without hope and without God in the world. Paul says, you Gentiles were strangers to it all. You were not a part of God's chosen people. You had no promises from God, no guarantees, no securities. You were separated from Christ without anything. Therefore, you were without hope and without God in the world. Let me tell you something. You don't have God's promises. You're not a part of his kingdom. You don't have Christ. Let me tell you, you don't have anything, do you? You don't. You're hopeless. Paul says, that's where many of you Gentiles were before God made himself and his promises and his son known to you. He says, you were Christless, stateless, covenantless, and were therefore hopeless and godless. Now, why does Paul bring them down in this way? Why tell them all this? Why is this important for them to remember? Why does remembering who they were before Christ help them when it comes to Christian unity and walking worthy together? Well, the answer is really simple, folks. Do you know why 
Disunity is one of the most common problems in our churches because pride is the most common problem in our life. Like we said earlier and like we've said in the past, we have a tendency to think much higher of ourselves than we should. We often place ourselves at the center of everything. We make ourselves a top priority, especially in the Christian life and in the life of the church. And you know what happens when we do this? When you place yourself at the center of everything, you naturally neglect everyone else. You neglect God's people and His church, and that there causes disunity. That's why God stresses over and over again the importance of humility in his word. That's why Paul says it here in these first two verses. He brings these guys back down to size. He goes, let me tell you something. Y'all weren't anything special before God called you, before he saved you. He brings them back down to size. And get this, this is why. Because Paul knows for unity to occur corporately, get this, there must be humility individually. That's true. Pride rips the church apart. Humility brings the church together. That's why Paul spends time here focusing on these things. There must be humility. There must be. And that's what the gospel's meant to do. Do you know that? It's meant to humble us. I mean, think about your lives prior to salvation. All of us in here at one time, we are in the same boat, weren't we? Outside of God's kingdom, outside of his covenant, outside of his promises, separated from his son and his people. We were without hope and without God in our lives and world. We at one time, folks, were strangers to it all, like Paul says in the first part of Ephesians 2. We were dead in sin, without a hope in the world. Now let's stop there for a minute and let me ask you that. Let me ask you this. If that's true of us, what on earth is there to be proud of? Why are we so proud? If it's true that without God, there'd be nothing desirable in us, nothing good in us on our own, why are we proud? Folks, Scripture is clear that there is no one in here, nor is there anyone anywhere else that's any more significant than anyone else. Before salvation, we were all in the same boat. Sinners in need of salvation. You know what? After salvation, we as believers are all in the same boat. We're God's people, but by His grace. As Paul said over and over again, nothing we did to deserve it. It's by God's grace. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, He saved us. Let me tell you, if that becomes our perspective, if that becomes the way we view ourselves, we will be well on our way to being unified as a church and we will walk worthy together. We will. So that's the first thing we must do. We must remember who we were before Christ and we'll discuss the other two points next week. But let me end this morning with this. Maybe you're here this morning for the first time In your life, you've been made truly aware of your sinfulness and your need. Maybe as we've been looking at this passage and others like it, God has made it clear to you that Ephesians 2, 11 through 12 is not your past, but your present. 
Maybe you're here and you know right now beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're presently outside of God's kingdom, outside of his covenant, outside of his promises, separated from his son and his people and are without hope and without God in your life. And the reason why is because you yourself are Christless. You're currently separated from God because you've not yet received the work his son has accomplished on your behalf and you've not made him your Lord and you're not trusting in him for your salvation. If this is you, I want to turn your attention real quickly to verse 13 of Ephesians 2. Though I'll reread this next week, I can't leave here today without reading this verse. Look at what Paul says to the Christians of his day. He says, but now, I love that phrase, don't you? I'm thankful for that phrase. Just like I'm thankful for the but God that comes in Ephesians 2.4. I'm thankful for the but now in Ephesians 2.13. Look at what Paul says. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, get this, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Wow. See, the bad news is you, me, us, we, if left to ourselves, we're nothing. We're spiritually dead. Christless, hopeless, and godless. But the good news is that through the great plan of God, through the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus, we can be brought near. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can be made right with God. We can be brought into His family. How's that possible? End of verse 13. By the blood of Christ. Folks, God has made a way for us when there seemed to be no way he's made a way for you today to be alive again through the work his son accomplished at Calvary today you can move from darkness to light from death to life if you would turn from your sin and trust in God's son for your salvation you can be brought near to God today by God's son through his blood if you would make him make Christ your Lord I pray if you've never made that decision that you make it right now, today. Let's pray.